years back. Uh, today we're <coughs> looking at uh, God's house uh, in a manner of how uh, God has revealed his house to Israel and and continuing on uh, into history and into the future. Uh, and what that means is is not particularly a, a specific building. Uh, and and when you think about it, what makes your own home and why you call it home and, you know, is it because of how big it is or how small it is or where it is? Uh, no. And, and hopefully if it's a place that's comfortable, uh, not a place of, for some people, they hate home. I've had gone through periods of my life where I didn't want to go home. But uh, it, <clears throat> if you have a home that you call home and feels like a home, uh, you miss it when you're away from it. And it, it doesn't matter how big it is uh, or where it is or how luxurious it is. If you call it home, it's yours. And that is because of your presence. It is a place, not pres- presence like Christmas presence. I mean like you're where you exist comfortably. And in that and that alone, you know, that's your environment, that's your stuff, that's your place, that's your bed, that's your couch, that's, you know, it's where your presence is. Now, so I figured I'd give you um, a little fun here. Name that house. Big Ben, yeah. Now, I, I put in, I'm like, this should this would be fun. And then I thought, well, what? I couldn't think of like famous houses. I could think of like famous buildings, but and then I went and I googled famous houses and I came up with this list of places I didn't recognize. Uh, so we're not going to get so much houses, but uh right, Empire State Building. Yeah. Still the Empire State Building. That's just King Kong. Did I fool you? That, you're like, that's what I thought. I'm like, who's that guy up there? That's King Kong. I, I didn't use the 1930s picture. Uh, I, this is a more modern movie. Uh, Taj Mahal. Uh, there's a tough one. It's so small. I, I, I should have made them bigger. I'm sorry. It's so small. You would never know what that is at that size. That's the. It looks like a casino. That's the Kremlin. I know. I I, have, I should have used the red square uh, thing. Those upside down onions, or Hershey's Kisses that are in the red square. All right. There she is. There's someone running around in there. Uh, here's a good one. I would not have gotten this one. That is Graceland. Yeah. Well, at least Google says it is. Graceland, thank you very, thank you very much, thank you very much. All right, here you go. What's that one? Uh, uh, it's the Goonies house. Yeah, all right. In Astoria, Oregon. If you're not from Oregon or you're listening online, that's the whole reason I put that up there is because that's in Oregon. I wouldn't have gotten it, I don't think, and I was just in Astoria like two weeks ago. Whose house is that? 
Well, it is a replica, so that, that might put it out. That is the temple of God. That's a replica of Solomon's temple, yeah. Go Keith. So this is the house we're concerned about, okay? In this place, it's not going to look like it. Maybe it will look like it. That's Solomon's temple. That's not the one that Jesus, that one was destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. But uh, it was rebuilt. Uh, Zerubbabel was the builder. And, uh, and, you know, it didn't look quite as good as Solomon's temple, but it was uh, actually the temple was there in Jerusalem, and Jesus entered it and called it God's house. All right, so um, this becomes very important because then in the tribulation, which is our study, the temple is rebuilt. It's called, in, in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's called the temple of God, and God isn't in it. Somebody else is. And this whole story, oh, it's wonderful seeing it from beginning to end. Has a, There's many running themes through the scripture, and this is one of them. The house of God. And what makes that the house of God? The stones that it's made of. The, it was beautiful, uh, magnificent structure that Solomon created. Uh, but... What made it, after Solomon, after this was finished, and Solomon in 2 Kings, he dedicates it, he prays, a wonderful prayer he gives in, 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 uh, when he dedicates the temple, and the temple gets filled with the glory of God. And that's what makes it the temple. Alright, so last trivia question, where's the temple of God now? Now, there is one in heaven, that's true. That's true. There is a tabernacle in heaven, as as Hebrews says. Well, it's you. Come on, guys. (laughs) It's right there. All right. We got it right. So as you can see, we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. All right, let's pray. We're going to go to uh, Daniel chapter 9. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And uh, let's open up in prayer as we do. Let's be thankful, grateful, and let's be happy believers who have their destiny set by God in eternal security. You are indwelt by God forever. Now let's uh, get ready to hear God's word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gracious plan that you have created, that you have made in human history. You have decreed your hand has been upon everything, every event, every person. You have not created sin, nor have you condoned it ever. You hate it, but you have allowed it in your world. And you have called us who have believed upon your Son to freely, by our own choice, to follow you, to be in your presence as we know that you indwell us. What an amazing gift to be called the temple of God. May we see how wonderful that blessing is. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it is of extreme importance that we see the entire program of God in our everyday lives. And so while we're living in this calendar day today, that is a part of a big picture that God reveals to us. Now, it still applies that we're not worried about tomorrow, right? So we're not, we don't know what the future holds, not exactly. We know the things that God has revealed, but we don't know the details of many things. Uh, and so we do live for today, but we live for today in light of what the whole plan of God is about. And as you see the program of God throughout the scripture, you will actually see your place in it. And that makes your life more meaningful, gives it more, um, uh, it makes it more tangible. Right? Your life is something that is wonderfully tangible. Uh, that's, it's not non-important, even though there are millions of believers on this planet, and there have been millions and millions of believers throughout history. You, in particular, are of extreme importance to God. And God has a plan for you, just like he does for everybody else. And part of this plan, and we're looking at it now because we're studying Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul has, as you know, makes reference to the tribulational period. And that is because the Thessalonians had been um, deceived. Some of them, maybe many of them, had been deceived into thinking that perhaps the day of the Lord had come and that they were living in it. And the day of the Lord would be uh, as something that starts at the rapture, which you know, makes sense. That I would put it there. But nobody knows specifically. Some think it's only the tribulation. Some think it's the tribulation and the millennium. Um, and so either way, uh, you don't have to define. Remember, time with God is somewhat elastic. Uh, but the day of the Lord is a time to come, and it's a specific day, and in that day is a horrible bit to it, a horrible bit that is the, called the tribulation. It's seven years long. So Paul said to the Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And that's why we're looking at the tribulation. Before we look into the man of lawlessness, I want to see, I want us to see, myself included, <clears throat> the progression of events that happens leading up to that. And so we're going to look at the tribulation in some of the detail of it leading up to the middle of the tribulation. And that's when this man of lawlessness is revealed. And actually, I want to dabble in some of the entire scripture, places in the entire scripture that reveal um, or are related to the tribulational period. Uh, just simply as review, the things that we have noted, we haven't done anything really structured, and that's kind of the way I uh, think about things. So if you like structure, you probably like other pastors. <laughs> But anyway, uh, it's known as Daniel's 70th week. That's why we're starting in Daniel. It's a seven-year period. A seven-year period of the wrath of God upon the earth. The church, all evidence, most evidence points to, let's say, put it this way, 
strong evidence of the scripture points to the fact that the church will not go through this and that we're raptured beforehand. Uh, the reason of the tribulation is that Israel prepares for her Messiah. Another reason of the tribulation is God's wrath upon the earth, and particularly upon the sin of the earth, the sin and the evil God is going to bring his wrath against. Uh, he has uh, always had wrath against sin. It's just that the tribulation it is intense and very public. Uh, during this time, there is a pinnacle of rebellion Mankind's rebellion against God, both uh, religiously and politically. So uh, there's, a, as our passage calls it, the apostasy. And this is a time of tremendous rebellion by all mankind. And we'll see uh, when we get, as we progress, um, that God sends a delusion upon mankind. But not all mankind. It's those who have rejected the gospel are deluded into believing the things that happen in the tribulation to be real uh, and, and to actually follow the beast. And so we'll see that as it comes. So God does send a delusion upon the unbelievers. Um, <clears throat> during this time, the Satan's man of sin is revealed. And so this would be the, the poster child of Satan's evil in human, in a human. And that's who the beast is, or Antichrist, whatever you want to call him. He's got many titles. Uh, as Jesus told us, if the tribulation lasted any longer, no one would survive it. So it's seven years for a reason. Uh, for Probably for several reasons. That's God's number. Uh, but uh, also it's God's, as we see here, it's prophesied to be this seven years in Daniel. But if it lasted any longer, Jesus said, if it weren't cut short, no one would survive and the tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ. And so Jesus is going to tell us that Israel is not going to see him again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will. It is, it is shown, it is prophesied that they will. So in Daniel 9.24, reveals that God had ordained 70 weeks. These are 70 Actually, the Hebrew word means sevens, 70 sevens, or 490 years to Israel, from the time of the order to rebuild the city. Not to rebuild the temple, but to rebuild the city, Jerusalem, until the fulfillment of the covenants. And so and from that time, there would be 490 years uh, from the time that Antaxerxes, the uh, king of Persia, told um, um, Nehemiah, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Told Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city. And, uh, and from that time, 490 years. So if you do a quick calc in your head, you're like, well, that was around 400 and something B.C. When that order was given, 490 years had already gone by a long time ago. Uh, and that because there's a gap. So look at Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now that most holy place, where is that? That is the temple of God. 
so notice that the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, Daniel. This is particular to Israel, to your holy city. That is particular to Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. That's going to happen when the Messiah dies for the sins of the world on the cross. And then to bring an end and bring in everlasting righteousness and seal up the vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place that's going to occur at the second coming. These weeks are broken up into three divisions. As you continue reading, you see there's a seven, a 62, and a one. That adds up to, uh, sorry, uh, 70. <laughs> I had to do some real deep math there. Uh, so the first seven is... The first segment is seven. That's 49 years. That's what it, the length of time it would take to actually rebuild Jerusalem. Another 62 years, which is 400, sorry, 62 weeks of years, is 434 years until the coming of Messiah the Prince. And he would come riding into Jerusalem on the back of the colt on the exact day that this predicted, which would be 62 plus 7, 69 uh, weeks of years from that date, that day that uh, they were told to rebuild the city. Now, when Gabriel relates this prophecy to Daniel, the, there's no gap between the seven and the sixty-two. You see that it just says. Uh, so in verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the reason why they're separated is because the seven weeks is to rebuild the city. The 62 weeks is further from that when the city is finished being rebuilt to the time that Jesus rides in to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Uh, <clears throat> but then, while there's no interim there, at the end of seven plus 62 weeks of years, the Messiah is cut off. So it's, he says in verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. Or, or desolations are determined. So Messiah will be cut off. Uh, that is a reference to the, his death. Right, and have nothing probably relates to what his death would do to him. Remember, he's dying for the sins of the world. So this is not just a physical death. This is a spiritual death where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is being judged for the sins of the world as an innocent. And he is separated from his father or forsaken by his father for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus truly on the cross has nothing. He, he's even naked. He has nothing. It is the most alone that anyone could ever feel. None of us can fathom it. And we must not miss that because it's our reverence for him that's going to determine where we fall, even as believers in our thinking how we relate to what we are in Christ. So when we learn of all this and how the world, this is really about how the world responds to God, God's mankind that he created and world that he made. 
and blessings that he pours out upon the world and his nation Israel. As Jesus is going to say, I have longed and longed and longed to call you to myself. And you have refused. God has done nothing but want to bless them. And how do we respond to that? And even as believers, we can respond poorly to that. Hence, we have all of this lovely scripture to teach us how we should think, what is true, what is solidly real, as opposed to what is fantasy. <coughs> so between the, 62, the, between the 7 and 62 weeks, there's no signs given. Uh, they just blend right together. But then, uh, oh, and by the way, we should note that you know the prophecy says the Messiah will be cut off and then the prince who is to come, that's not the Messiah, that's someone else, that's our beast, our man of lawlessness, uh, is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the Lord was crucified, about 40 years later, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. Um, uh, by uh, Titus, and first it was uh, um, Vespasian as his father, and then Titus finished the job. Vespasian started it. And so uh, then it says in verse 27, now we have, so there's a sign here. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a sign between 69 and 70 weeks. And one of those signs is that uh, Jerusalem would be destroyed in the temple. Okay, so in verse, again, verse 26, and after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and, see there's an and, that's an important and, the people of the prince will just come and destroy the city. So after the 69 weeks, we have the death of the Messiah and of course his resurrection, ascension, and session, and then we have the destruction of the temple, and then which the Romans did in 70 A.D., it's a fact. And then what? Is there any more signs? So we move on to verse 27, and we have another and. And he will make a firm covenant. He, the antecedent to that, is this prince who destroys the city. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, with Revelation and all, uh, the book of Revelation, I mean, and, and other passages, we see here that there's a, this is a one, you know, one week of years. So, seven-year period, and halfway through it, something changes. This is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. Exactly at three and a half years to the day, 1,260 days, the beast enters into the temple, sets his image in the temple, breaks this covenant with Israel and then turns up the heat on the worst anti-Semitism the world has ever seen by miles. And that fits perfectly with this prophecy. But one thing starts it off and he says he makes a firm covenant and that is something that has yet to occur. There's been no world ruler that has made a firm covenant with Israel for a week seven years. It hasn't happened. And so this gap between 69 and 70 goes on. It goes on. Now what happens at 69? 69 weeks is not back when Daniel prophesies this. It's when Jesus is rejected. That's 69. 
He rides in to the city. They're all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, they were crying for him to be crucified and they kill him. And it's, I mean, the tragedy of it all is so tragic because of what mankind has done. There will be many who are separated from God forever. But yet at the same time, it's so wonderful because those who would believe would be delivered from all sin and death. What God has done here and is continuing to do is an epic story from Genesis to Revelation, which is a story that's real, obviously. That is the most amazing thing. And you're in it. You're a real part of it. And that's what I'm hoping to convey to you in our study. So between 69 and 70, there's this cool word, which is <coughs> interregnum. I didn't even look up how to pronounce it. I don't know what syllable is emphasized in this one, but uh, I'll go with interregnum. An interregnum is a period where, when normal government is suspended between successive reigns. And so, you know, as one king dies and whoever takes power after him, there's a period, a pause, a parenthesis. And that's what we're in. Jesus presented himself on the earth as king. They said, no, thank you. And he went to heaven, the right hand of God. Yeah, he's still ruler. He rules all. Of course he does. But he is in heaven. He's not here. At the second coming, he comes as king again, and he rules. In between, the interregnum is where we are. <clears throat> now, Jesus, of course knew this. and So we're going to look at his final. We looked at this a little bit before. Go to Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus' final lamentation over the house of the Lord. After he says this, he leaves the temple and he doesn't come back. Right after he says this, he leaves the temple. He goes through the Kidron Valley. He goes up the Mount of Olives. And that's where the disciples say to him, and it's so poetically great. It's so amazing that he, he leaves after he says this. He goes up the Mount of Olives. He takes a seat He's overlooking this beautiful temple, like that last picture you saw, except just imagine it with all of Israel in view, I'm, I'm Jerusalem in view. And the disciples say to him, isn't the temple beautiful? <laughs> isn't that great? Whereas he's the temple of God. They're looking at the structure. You remember he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He's look, they're looking at the structure <clears throat> and he says, I tell you truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, not one stone will be upon another. This temple will be no more. And it is and then and then they, they're like, Well, when is that gonna happen? When are you coming back? They ask four questions to him. And we're gonna look at that. They ask four questions and you have to take 
all three synoptic gospels, I call them synoptic because they're very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you put them all together. It's a great exercise. I, if you've if you got an afternoon to burn and you want to do something in your Bible, right? take Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Read them all, take notes on them all, and put them side by side and try and make your own little harmony of the gospel from it. Uh, yeah, it's a fun exercise. <laughs> and don't get scared when you get confused because you just might. Uh, so you just keep at it. Um, and when you compare them, there's one of those Gospels that has a little bit that is not found in the other two. And it's an important little bit. It actually is a kind of a key to put it all together. We'll get there. There's That's, that's called a cliffhanger that you put out there. I learned that in my video class. All right, Matthew 23:37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Both those verbs are in the present tense. Kills and stones. This city was supposed to be, this is where God, God says, I put my name here. He's going to say the same thing about the temple. I find it astounding that Solomon builds this temple and that God wouldn't say, I'm not living in that. That's what I would do. <laughs> I'm God Almighty of heaven. I'm going to live in that place. Sure, it's beautiful by earthly standards. But no. He says, my name will be in this house. And he doesn't stop there. He says, my name, my eyes, and my heart will be in that house. Where is he now? Where is the temple of God now? My name. Do you possess God's name? You sure do. You sure do. <laughs> i got to stop asking these yes-no questions, right? Because if you get them wrong, then you feel bad. In Philippians 3, the whole family bears his name. Not, uh, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, where Paul prays. Ephesians 3.14. The whole family bears his name. Is his heart in you? Are his eyes in you? His name is you in you? He's in you. You are the very temple of God. Now, the temple and the city was supposed to be a light to the world. It was supposed to be a place where all could come and learn of God. All could come and hear salvation. But it wasn't. And notice what Jesus says. Jerusalem, you kills who kills, present tense, meaning they perpetually do it, kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. That is, that is a summary of human history and the tragedy of it. You were unwilling. Behold your house. You'd skip over. If I didn't have my wonderful commentators to teach me how to read the Bible, I'd be lost. But I'll never forget this. He doesn't say, my house is left to you desolate. He changes. He was calling it my house. My father's house. Your house is being left to you desolate. 
You are the temple of God and so am I. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 6. When the the Corinthians are taking their bodies over to the temple of Aphrodite, wrong temple, and sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, I'm sorry, priestesses. Hello, my name is, I'm a priestess. Yeah, right, you're a harlot. <laughs> so, and so Paul's response to that was, not that you're going to hell in a handbag, you're a saint, you're a temple of God, and the temple of God should not be united with a harlot. And then he says, you are the temple of God, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your mind, soul, heart, immaterial part, and your body. This study has taught me more than ever that, yes, my body must be used to glorify God. And it's a very popular teaching. It's a, a spillover from Gnosticism. To say, well, I just I glorify God in my mind, my spiritual life, in my immaterial self, but I also give my body what it wants. Or that I don't present my body to God as a living and holy sacrifice, Romans 12.1. But self-control is over the body. Romans 8.11 says the same thing, that we have the Spirit of God in us that overrules the body that wants to sin. And so we rule it. He's not going to make us sinless perfectly, no. But we have to rule it. Don't buy the lie that comes from some pulpits, which is popular with some because we like sin. Come on. So it can be a popular teaching that you don't have to take care of your body. And how you take care of it. It is to resist sin. And also, I would say, you know, to reasonably take care of it so that it's usable to God's service. Um, and so, your house is let your house. No, he doesn't say my house. Your house is left to you desolate because you were unwilling. Now, for us, we have to say, this isn't my house. I used to think it was. (laughs) And so I gave it what I wanted because I was the God of my house. I am no longer the God. And it's not my house anymore. I can't even say that he's the God of my house. He's the God of his house. Oh, what freedom you will experience. And me. When we take a step over that threshold probably been scared our whole lives to do it. But Jesus says, For I say, verse 39, to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will. It's prophesied. At the end of the tribulation, they will long for him. They will cry for him. They will repent of their sin. And they will mourn. Zechariah 12 says, They'll mourn over him like an only son. When he returns and they see his scars, they're going to do this. And I find it fascinating that, you know, say God doesn't do the tribulation. Let's just say we have the church. Let's just skip that seven-year part. 
Right? He's going to judge everybody anyway. Just skip it. Go right to the second coming. Kick everybody's butt. Get it over with right into eternity. Actually, a lot of Israel believed that that is the way it was going to be. They, had to, they believed in two dispensations, Israel did. Now and later. <laughs> Very simple. I like simplicity. The age of now and the age of the Messiah. And, and, that, and that's why this interregnum, this parenthesis, like, what is that? And yeah, that's a great question because God, Jesus, calls it a mystery. He said, calls it a mystery, the mystery of the kingdom. And that's where he starts telling those parables in Matthew 13. This is the mystery, and the mystery continues until we reap the harvest. I planted wheat in my field, Satan planted tares. He said, let them be until the end of the age, and then we'll separate them out. The end of that age is after the tribulation. So why the tribulation at all? Think about how many... Personally, it seems to me that if God doesn't bring the tribulation and the awfulness of it, just the dreadful awfulness of it, as you read about it, the wrath of God and the tribulation is just awful. If it doesn't happen that way, there isn't a bunch of Jews who become believers, who are saints in the tribulation, who God protects in the wilderness from, from being martyred or murdered by the beast, and they become a unit, like a, a nation of their own in terms of doing this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to call for him. Would that have happened without the tribulation? It, does, it seems like it wouldn't have. So God brings it, brings this judgment upon the earth, knowing exactly what he's doing. Saving souls. Uh, The God of history is the eternal and incarnate Son, whose hand has always been in the affairs of men. Here we see it again. You're not going to see me again, Jesus says, until you say this. The tragedy of history is found in the words, you were unwilling. The Messiah is cut off. Right? Daniel 9.26, the Messiah is cut off. The prophecy is he'll have nothing. When he dies on the cross, he will have nothing. He had nothing. When he resurrected and ascended, he gained everything. I mean, he's God. He didn't get any more. But, you know, the, the gift that he got was his bride. That's us. Uh, these wings are an image used in the Old Testament of Yahweh's care, Yahweh's care of his people. In Psalm 91, it said, he writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The shelter of the Most High be the temple. But it, as we see, it, it's not just a matter of just being in the building if, when, when, it was, when it was there. Will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. And that 
fourth line of this on the board. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. How often I wanted to gather you under my pinions. And we also know that in the temple there are wings. And they're over the Holy of Hol- they're over, sorry, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And what is on that mercy seat is the blood of the Lamb. Or the ram and the bull, which was brought in only once a year. The high priest only went in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. He died for the sins of all. And that's what the Day of Atonement was, for all the sins of Israel. And so, you know, Jesus is saying, look, I wanted you to meet me not based on your merits because you're so good or you've proven to me that you're acceptable because you're not, none of you. But I asked you to meet me under these wings on the mercy seat where I have died and for your sins to be forgiven. (coughs) Meet me there. And that's where the Shekinah glory was, right? And then, so you see this whole history of this, the temple and the glory. And then after the captivity to Babylon, Babylon destroys it. And the Ark of the Covenant never returns. Where did it go? Indiana Jones found it in Egypt. And then, they, then the United States government got it. At the end of the movie, <laughs> you remember? You ever? That, I saw that in the theater. That was one of the most impactful movies of my whole life because I saw it when it first came out. And when they put that thing in that big storehouse, oh my God! Right? The biggest kick in the teeth. The holy, holy. Uh, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant never returned. <clears throat> so. Um, when they rebuilt the temple, the Holy of Holies built in there, of course. And without the Ark of the Covenant in it, but they truly believed the Shekinah glory was in there. Whether it was or not, I don't know. I don't think the Scripture tells us. But what I do know is that when Jesus came in his incarnation, he went to the temple. And he is the Shekinah glory. And he entered the temple. And he taught in the temple. He, he did miracles in the temple. And same thing here. They could have accepted him. But he says, I leave your house desolate. So go, uh, go with me to Chronicles, Second Chronicles. A couple of quick passages. Because I want to go <coughs> way back now to this temple. We're going to tie this temple, and remember to come. And you know, it's hard to get all of what what thought I want to do in, in the limited time we have in one gathering. But we know that <clears throat> the abomination of desolation is going to be in the holy of holies. Right? Jesus said it himself, and where we just read in Matthew 23, he says in Matthew 24 that the abomination of desolation is going to enter. That's when he says, "Don't go home. Run for the hills." When that happens, we see in Second Thessalonians 2 that the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed who enters the temple of God 
and claims to be God. And and I find it fascinating that this temple that is going to, when it's rebuilt or whenever, we don't know, but it is in the tribulation period. It's not now. It doesn't exist right now. So it has to be built between now and then. <coughs> Excuse me. And that it's called, Paul calls it the temple of God in Second Thessalonians. We saw in Daniel that halfway through this 70th week, the prince is going to put an end to the sacrifices. So there's some kind of sacrificial, you know, the working of the temple as it used to be happening in the tribulation for three and a half years. <clears throat> and so with us, you know, we go back and we see something very similar. Now, again, you have Israel rejecting Jesus as a Messiah. He says, your house is left to you desolate. You have uh, in the coming, the future, in the tribulation, this beast desecrates the temple with his image. And then we go back to Chronicles. And we see in Chronicles, same in Kings also, but here in Chronicles especially, an example of our treatment of holiness. I say ours because even though it's the example of how the kings of Israel treated the temple, it really is a depiction of us. Why would God record for us certain kings that were good and followed the Lord and loved the Lord in the temple and then you've got this other king who basically spits on the temple, like terribly. And God tells us what happens to each one. Right? And we're the temple of God now. There's a temple in the future. And guess what? In all of eternity, there's a temple. Jesus Christ is the temple. So, so this house, and if, if you think of temples, sometimes we think of, I think it's better to call it a house because what I want to do is to picture it as a dwelling place of God. And you know, even your life, You are the temple of God, but then Jesus said, look, if you love me and follow my commands, I and my Father will build our house with you. John 14, 23. I love that passage. And I want to go through life in a house with God. His house that he built, right? It's his, it's not mine. So I'm already the temple of God, and on top of that, by loving the Lord and obeying his commands, my life will be the house of God. Think, what do you do? What would you do in God's house? You'd wipe your feet on the rug. Not on the rug, sorry, on the mat. (laughs) You'd clean up after yourself. You'd say your pleases and thank yous, right? You'd be on your best behavior. Think of that. What is the house? What am I? It's the house of God in this epic drama that is human history. It's amazing. In Chronicles, stresses his God's commitment to David's house. Now, when I say David's house, here's another house for you. I, I don't mean where David lived. I don't know where David lived. But I mean his dynasty. And it's called a house. The house of David. 
And God, when David said, I'm going to, and David now in Chronicles, out of all the chapters that are devoted to David, I say in Chronicles because there's no first and second Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. You know what? You know why there's first and second Kings? I just found this out not a little, just a little, long, a little while ago. In the Hebrew Bible, there's Kings. It's not first and second Kings. There's Samuel, not first and second Samuel. And there's Chronicles. There's not first and second Chronicles. But when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, see, Hebrews doesn't have any uh, vowels. Now you write in Greek, you have to throw in all these vowels. How many vowels are there? There's tons of them. So the books went from this wide to this wide. So instead, of, And they couldn't fit it on a scroll. So they were like, well, we have to break kings into two scrolls. First and second kings. There you have it. Right at the education you get at Grace and Truth Ministries. David is honored in Chronicles. In Chronicles, they don't even mention his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's not even there. David is painted as just awesome, which he was, but his sins are not revealed in Chronicles. He left them out. You might ask, well, why, why do they even write Chronicles anyway? If you read Chronicles, it looks like a duplicate. In many places, it's a word-for-word duplicate of either Samuel or Kings. But we're pretty sure that Chronicles was written after the exile to write a further history for those who returned from Babylon so that they would have a history of the kings of Israel that they could have for themselves. And what God wanted to preserve in this history was the house of David. It's one, if you read the last line of Chronicles, the last line of Chronicles, Cyrus the Great says, go up. That's his last word. It does, like it doesn't even end. There's no end to it. It's like a big question mark. The book ends with, go build the city, and anybody who wants to go, go up. And you're like, what's next? And that's exactly what God wants you to think. Because it's not over. The city's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The people are in captivity. Is it over? Are the covenants of God kaput? And he leaves the book of Chronicles wide open at the end. So look at Second Chronicles 7 16. This after Solomon builds and dedicates the temple. This is Solomon's temple, so it's the first structure, right? The first real structure of the temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Perpetually? How is that possible? It was beautiful. Both, you see here, and it's also in Sam, 2 Samuel, that David gets this thought that God's ark is in a house made of curtains. And David says, I live in a house of cedar. And he says, I want to build a house for God. And God's response to David is, you will not build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And your house is going to be forever. And your son is going to have a kingdom that will never end. God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But this eternal house of David 
is not a structure. Because the temple's not even there anymore. The house of David is Jesus Christ. Right? The house of David is his dynasty. As bad as the kings of Judah were. Now, if you remember, Israel split northern kingdom, southern kingdom. There was a, a civil war and they split. In the northern kingdom, there were multiple dynasties. You know, not one family ruled for the whole hundreds and hundreds of years. But in the southern kingdom in Judah, it was all from one family. All descended from David. As bad as bad could be, descended from David. God says it over and over. I'm not going to destroy Judah because of David. I'm not going to destroy Judah. I will. love. Not even say I'd love to. But he had every right. But I'm not going to do it because of David. And even when they go into captivity, they come back because of David. Because of David as a person? No, because of David's dynasty, David's house. This is how important, how precious is God's house. Why is it precious? It's the place of God's presence. You know, more and more, and, and we're here, uh, go to, look at verse, chapter 28, 22. 28, 22. Here's, a, here's one of David's children or prodigy. This guy was a big, fat loser. Now in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz. It's not Ahab. There's an A. Oh, the kings are even in in the. If you read, you know, you'll see like the same name, and they're two different people. It just drives me crazy. Now in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. And said, because the gods of the kings of Aram, which are, is Syria, by the way, help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Oh, brilliant idea. But they became the downfall of him in all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself to the gods of Damascus in every corner of Jerusalem. What? Yeah, this is a king of Judah. How does he think that any way that this is a good idea? That just so deceived. And how does he treat... And now I have more examples. I've got the great example of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king of them all. He sacrificed his child to Malok, the god of the Ammonites. He had his child murdered as a sacrifice to a false god. He put, uh, Manasseh put altars of the false god in the temple. He put them right in the temple. Ahaz put them all, shut the doors of the temple and put his altars around the city. Manasseh put the altars right in the temple. Yeah, it didn't turn out well for him. But that's the other thing you learn is that for the kings that were faithful to the house of the Lord, their lives were blessing. And to these guys, guys like this, and there's multiple of them, not good. I mean, that's a, that's a good theological way of putting it, not good. Now, 
What's in the temple again? What's in you? What's in you? Who's in you? It's God's presence. So look, here's what we learn. First off, it's important how we treat this temple. Right? We we are servants of the Lord. Now I know our flesh don't like it. I know some. <laughs> if you some out there maybe listen to me, don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear the fact that your physical body, your inward self, and your outward self are the Lord's. They're not yours. And that you have to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your body. You know, I, I know some people, if I if I was sitting in the pew, no, we don't have pews, in the seat years ago, I wouldn't want to hear that either. But it's better for you to be leveled with. That this is the truth. That comes from God's word, not from me. But here's the great reward. When you get to, if you were entered the holy place, what did what was there for you? The Lord. That's what you got. You got Him. When you uh, do the work of God and serve God in life, now, day by day, and you use the temple that God has made you in His service as the believer priest, royal priest that you are. When you do that, you are getting closer to God. You are in His presence. Unfortunately, in Christianity, and because, and it's not unfortunate that we're told about the rewards to this life, because we are told and we should long for those rewards. But the reward, truly the reward to this is God Himself. So if I were to show you a shiny crown and say you could have this and then uh, behind door number two, if anybody remember, well, you guys are old enough to know Monty Hall. If you say behind door number two is God, do you want the shiny crown or do you want God? All right, it's a no-brainer. The things that we do when we do them as he wills, it puts us in his presence. Truly, that's what fellowship is. And in his presence, this unfathomable God of ours, in his presence, would I care if I had a crown or no crown? Would I care if I had money or no money? Would I care if I was... Would I care? No, you wouldn't. And that's what the temple of God is. Jesus went into it. They said, no, thank you. He said, I'm coming back, though. But what do you got to say? Blessed is the name of the Lord, right? That's his person. Blessed are you, Lord God. So Christians are, you know, I want to do good. I want to do great. And I was caught up in this trap, too. And they want to do well. And their motivation, their end game is for self. And that's why they don't succeed so often. They pursue righteousness, and the hope is is that righteousness is going to make them give something to them, and what they're concerned about is them. And it's not a great motivation. It'll take you a little way, but it won't take you very far. But if you're after the presence of God, there you have it. You have it. That, that is, is what is going to take you far. 
the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. That's where we are. That's what we're pursuing. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for this throughout your word. You tie together all the things that make up for the plan and purposes that you have made. You are so much higher than us. Your word, your way is so much higher than us. But yet what you have revealed, we could spend a hundred lifetimes trying to discover. And we thank you, Father, that through that we may be with you and glory in you. We ask that we do so. Father, you show us how. In Christ's name, amen.